Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Friday, March 3rd episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. That would be episode, I believe it's 184, episode 184. I am Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Definitely worth your while to get over there. Um, Wonderful, wonderful content. Uh, Great men and women of God over there doing wonderful work. Um, so definitely, you know, believe me, you, you won't have enough time to listen to all the things you want to listen to. I also want to continue to point out that, uh, the last, um, link in our show notes is a link for the Vale Valley Baptist church. Give send go campaign. We are striving to rapidly pay off our mortgage so that we can shift gears and commence establishment of a Christian, uh, classic education based school, um, to offer an alternative for the people in our community. So, um, you know, go ahead and click on the link and take a read through it'll, it'll describe things a little bit better than I just did. And then we would ask three things of you. We would ask for you to pray for us. We'd ask you to prayerfully consider giving to us. And then we would ask you to pass the link along to others so that they can do the same. All right, well, let's get on. So of course, like we usually do, our morning segment is going to be our Bible reading for the day. And then our evening segment, we're going to continue reading into Thomas Watson's The Godly Man's Picture. So let's go ahead and open up like we usually do on uh, Friday mornings. We're going to open up with the sixth day morning prayer. It's called The Gospel. Let's pray. O thou most high, creator of the ends of the earth, governor of the universe, judge of all men, head of the church, Savior of sinners, thy greatness is unsearchable, thy goodness infinite, thy compassions unfailing, thy providence boundless, thy mercies ever new. We bless thee for the words of salvation. How important, suitable, encouraging are the doctrines, promises, and invitations of the gospel of peace. We are lost, but in it thou hast presented to us a full, free, and eternal salvation. Weak, but here we learn that help is found in one that is mighty. Poor, but in him we discover unsearchable riches. Blind, but we find he has treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank thee for thy unspeakable gift. Thy Son is our only refuge, foundation, hope, confidence. We depend upon his death, rest in his righteousness, desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds, his love reign in our affections, his cross inflame us with ardor. Let us as Christians fill our various situations in life escape the snares to which they expose us, discharge the duties that arise from our circumstances, enjoy with moderation their advantages, improve with diligence their usefulness, and may every place and company we are in be benefited by us. Amen. All right, and now our morning devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for March 3rd. Uh, The text comes from Isaiah 48.10. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Comfort thyself, tried believer, with this thought. God saith, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. 
Does not the word come like a soft shower, assuaging the fury of the flame? Yea, is it not an asbestos armor against which the heat hath no power? Let affliction come. God has chosen me. Poverty thou mayest stride in at my door, but God is in the house already, and he has chosen me. Sickness, thou mayst intrude, but I have a balsam ready. God has chosen me. Whatever befalls me in this veil of tears, I know that he has chosen me. If, believer, thou requirest still greater comfort, remember that you have the Son of Man with you in the furnace. In that silent chamber of yours, there sitteth by your side one whom thou hast not seen, but whom thou lovest, and oft times when thou knowest it not, he makes all thy bed and thy affliction, and smooths thy pillow for thee. Thou art in poverty, but in that lovely house of thine, the Lord of life and glory is a frequent visitor. Oh, sorry, I just is a frequent visitor. He loves to come into these desolate places that he may visit thee. Thy friend sticks closely to thee. Thou canst not see him, but thou mayest feel the pressure of his hands. Dost thou not hear his voice? Even in the valley of the shadow of death, he says, Fear not, I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Remember that noble speech of Caesar? Fear not, thou carriest Caesar and all his fortune. Fear not, Christian. Jesus is with thee in all thy fiery trials. His presence is both thy comfort and safety. He will never leave one whom he has chosen for his own. Fear not, for I am with thee, is his sure word of promise to his chosen ones in the furnace of affliction. Wilt thou not then take fast, take fast hold of Christ and say, Through floods and flames, if Jesus lead, I'll follow where he goes. All right. And now our Bible reading for the day. We're starting in Leviticus 24, verse 14, and reading on through Numbers 1. Now if a man sets his house apart as holy to Yahweh, then the priest shall value it as either good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. Yet if the one who sets it apart as holy should wish to redeem his house, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it, so that it may be his. Again, if a man sets apart as holy to Yahweh a portion of the fields of his own possession, then your valuation shall be proportionate to the seed needed for it. A homer of barley seed at fifty shekels of silver, if he sets apart his field as holy from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. If he sets apart his field as holy after the Jubilee, however, then the priest shall calculate the price for him proportionate to the years that are left until the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. If the one who sets it apart as holy should ever wish to redeem the field, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it, so that it may stand as his own. Yet if he will not redeem the field, but has sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. And it will be that when it reverts in the jubilee, the field shall be holy to Yahweh, like a field that is devoted. It shall be for the priest as his possession. Or if he sets apart as holy to Yahweh a field which he has bought, which is not a portion of the field of his own possession, then the priest shall calculate for him the amount of your valuation up to the year of jubilee, and he shall on that day give your valuation as holy to Yahweh. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to the one from whom he bought it, to whom the possession of the land belongs. Every valuation of yours, moreover, shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel shall be twenty geras. However, a firstborn among animals, which, is a which as a firstborn belongs to Yahweh, no man may set it apart as holy. 
whether ox or sheep. It is Yahweh's. But if it is among the unclean animals, then he shall ransom it according to your valuation and add to it one-fifth of it. And if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, anything which a man devotes to Yahweh out of all that he has of man or animal or of the fields of his own possession shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to Yahweh. No one who may have been devoted among men shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree belongs to Yahweh. It is holy to Yahweh. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. For every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to Yahweh. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it, or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which Yahweh commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. And now Numbers 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month in the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregations of congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from twenty years old and upward. Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. These, then, are the names of the men who shall stand with you. Of Reuben, Eleazar the son of Shedur. Of Simeon, Shalumiel the son of Zerushadai. Of Judah, Nashon the son of Aminadab. Of Issachar, Nethanel the son of Zuar. Of Zebulun, Eliab the son of Helon. Of the sons of Joseph, of Ephraim, Elishama the son of Amihud of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, of Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni, of Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Okran, of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel, of Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. These are they who were called upon by the congregation, the leaders of their father's tribes, they were the heads of divisions of Israel. So Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first of the second month. Then they registered by genealogy in their families by their father's household, according to the number of names from twenty years old and upward, head by head, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. Now the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war. Their numbered men of the tribe of Reuben was forty-six thousand five hundred. Of the sons of Simeon, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, their numbered men according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Simeon were fifty-nine thousand three hundred. Of the sons of Gad, their genealogical registration, by their family, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war. Their numbered men of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. 
of the sons of Judah, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Judah were seventy-four thousand six hundred. Of the sons of Issachar, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Issachar, were fifty-four thousand four hundred. Of the sons of Zebulun, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Zebulun, were fifty-seven thousand four hundred. Of the sons of Joseph, namely of the sons of Ephraim, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Ephraim, were forty thousand five hundred. Of the sons of Manasseh, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200. Of the sons of Benjamin, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. Of the sons of Dan, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Dan were sixty-two thousand seven hundred. Of the sons of Asher, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Asher, were forty-one thousand five hundred. Of the sons of Nephtali, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war. Their numbered men of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These are the ones who were numbered, whom Moses and Aaron numbered with the leaders of Israel, twelve men each of whom was of their father's household. So all the numbered men of the sons of Israel, by their father's households, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war in Israel, even all the numbered men were 603,550. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. Yahweh had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi, Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle, tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall attend to it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. And the sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, and each man by his own standard, according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus the sons of Israel did, according to all which Yahweh had commanded Moses. So they did. Now, Mark 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 26. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage 
and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them, just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, having cut them from the field. And those who went in front of those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. And on the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry, and seeing at a distance a fig tree that had leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they were going out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. For this reason I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your, transgr your transgressions. Sorry. Um, Psalm 46. For the choir director of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be shaken. God will, God will help her when morning dawns. The nations roar, the kingdoms shake, he gives his voice, the earth melts. Yahweh of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. Come behold the works of Yahweh, who has appointed desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts up the spear. 
He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. All right, and Proverbs 10:23. Doing wickedness is like laughing to a fool, and so is wisdom to a man of discernment. All right, well, that is our reading for this morning. Um, I thank you for spending this time with me. Um, I pray that this time is edifying, that your exposure to the scripture is edifying for you. I hope you have a wonderful day. I would continue to um, implore you to um, do all that you do today for the glory of God. And God willing, I will see you this evening. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. Our Valley of Vision prayer to close out this this morning is called happiness. Let's pray. O Lord, help me never to expect any happiness from the world, but only in thee. Let me not think that I shall be more happy by living to myself, for I can only be happy if employed for thee, and if I desire to live in this world, only to do and suffer what thou dost allot me. Teach me that if I do not live a life that satisfies thee, I shall not live a life that will satisfy myself. Help me to desire the spirit and temper of angels, who willingly come down to this lower world to perform thy will. Though their desires are heavenly, and not set in the least upon earthly things, then I shall be of that temper I ought to have. Help me not to think of living to thee in my own strength, but always to look to and rely on thee for assistance. Teach me that there is no greater truth than this, that I can do nothing of myself. Lord, this is the life that no unconverted man can live. Yet it is an end that every godly soul presses after. Let it be then my concern to devote myself and all to thee. Make me more fruitful and more spiritual, for barrenness is my daily affliction and load. How precious is time, and how painful to see it fly, with little done to good purpose. I need thy help. O oh, may my soul sensibly depend upon thee for all sanctification, and every accomplishment of thy purposes for me, for the world, and for thy kingdom. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have a great day, and I hope to see you this evening. Have a good one. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Friday, March 3rd episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. That's episode 184. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. Um, the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. Um, you can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. I would definitely encourage you to go and do so. There's a lot of great podcasts over there. There's 50 or more over there right now, um, heavily curated. They've, they've, they've been monitored and curated to ensure um, that they they hold to a, to a statement of belief. They hold to the Bible. Um, they're, they're great. Um, and they cover a wide realm of, of topics. So definitely worth your while. Um, as I usually, as I've said before, and I'll keep saying, you will run out of time to listen to all the things you want to listen to over there. So again, I would just encourage you to go on over there. All right. So we're going to be continuing our, this evening in our reading of Thomas Watson's, the godly man's picture. We are going to be do today working on the 18th 
excuse me, the 18th characteristic um, of the godly man. And again, like I've said before, it's not just for men. It's for women as well. This is the godly person. But that 18th characteristic, a godly man loves the saints. So that's what we're going to be dealing with this evening. So let's go ahead and open up like we usually do in a prayer from Valley of Vision. The one we're going to be opening up with this evening is called Paradoxes. Let's pray. O changeless God, under the conviction of thy spirit, I learn that the more I do, the worse I am. The more I know, the less I know. The more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. The more I love, the more there is to love. O wretched man that I am, O Lord, I have a wild heart and cannot stand before thee. I am like a bird before a man. How little I love thy truth and ways. I neglect prayer by thinking I have prayed enough and earnestly, by knowing thou hast saved my soul. Of all hypocrites, grant that I may not be an evangelical hypocrite, who sins more safely, safely because grace abounds, who tells his lust that Christ's blood cleanseth them, who reasons that God cannot cast him into hell, for he is saved, who loves evangelical preaching, churches, Christians, but lives unholily. My mind is a bucket without a bottom, with no spiritual understanding, no desire for the Lord's day, ever learning but never reaching the truth, always at the gospel well but never holding water. My conscience is without conviction or contrition, with nothing to repent of. My will is without power of decision or resolution. My heart is without affection and full of leaks. My memory has no retention, so I forget easily the lessons learned and thy truth seep away. Give me a broken heart that yet carries home the water of grace. Amen. All right, in our evening devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for March 3rd, it comes. the text comes from Matthew 3.16. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. As the Spirit of God descended upon the Lord Jesus, the head, so he also, in measure, descends upon the members of the mystical body. His descent is to us after the same fashion as that in which it fell upon our Lord. There is often a singular rapidity about it, or ever we are, or ever we are aware, we are impelled onward and heavenward beyond all expectation. Yet is there none of the hurry of earthly haste, for the wings of the dove are as soft as they are swift. Quietness seems essential to many spiritual operations. The Lord is in the still small voice. And like the dew, his grace is distilled in silence. The dove has ever been the chosen type of purity, and the Holy Spirit is holiness itself. Where he cometh, everything that is pure and lovely, and of good report, is made to abound, and sin and uncleanness depart. Peace reigns also where the holy dove comes with power. He bears the olive branch, which shows that the waters of divine wrath are assuaged. Gentleness is a sure result of the sacred dove's transforming power. Hearts touched by his benign influence are meek and lowly, henceforth and forever. Harmlessness follows as a matter of course. Eagles and ravens may hunt their prey. The turtle dove can endure wrong but cannot inflict it. We must be harmless as doves. The dove is an apt picture of love. The voice of the turtle is full of affection, and so the soul visited by the Blessed Spirit abounds in love to God, in love to the brethren, and in love to sinners and above all, in love to Jesus. The brooding of the Spirit of God upon the face of the deep first produced order and life, and in our hearts he causes and fosters new life and light. 
Blessed Spirit, as thou didst rest upon our dear Redeemer, even so rest upon us from this time forward and forever. All right. And now our reading in Thomas Watson's The Godly Man's Picture. And like I said, so we're in the, the overall section four, which is breaks down in that, that uh, covers the attributes of the godly man. And we're in small section number 18. So attribute number 18 of the godly man. So section 18, a godly man loves the saints. Let me do that. There we go. The best way to discern grace is in oneself is to love grace in others. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3.14 What is religion but a, sorry, but a knitting together of hearts? Faith knits us to God and love knits us one to another. There is a twofold love toward others. One, a civil love. A godly man has a civil love toward all. Abraham stood up and bowed to the children of Heth. Genesis 23.7 Though they were foreign and not within the pale of the covenant, yet Abraham was affable to them. Grace sweetness and refines I'm sorry, grace sweetens and refines nature. Be courteous, first Peter three eight. We are to have a civil love toward all. One, because they are of the same clay, of the same lump, and mold with ourselves, and are a piece of God's elaborate needlework. Two, because our sweet deportment towards them may be a means to win them over and make them in love with the ways of God. A morose, harsh bearing often alienates the hearts of others and hardens them more against holiness, whereas loving behavior is very obliging, and it may be like a lodestone to draw them to religion. Number two, a pious and a holy love. This is what a godly man has chiefly towards those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10 The first was a love flowing from courtesy. This is from delight. Our love to the saints, says Augustine, should be more than to our natural relations, because the bond of the Spirit is nearer than that of blood. This love to the saints, which evidences that a man is godly, must have seven ingredients in it. Number one, love to the saints must be sincere. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.18 The honey that drips from the comb is pure, so love must be pure and without deceit. Many are like Naphtali. He uses beautiful words. Genesis 49.21 Pretended love is like a painted fire, which has no heat in it. Some hide malice, malice under a false veil of love. I have read of Antonius the emperor, that where he made a show of friendship, he intended the most mischief. Number two, love to the saints must be spiritual. We must love them because they are saints, and not out of selfish respects, nor because they are affable or have been kind to us. Rather, we must love them from spiritual considerations, because of the good that is in them. We are to reverence their holiness, or else it, sorry, or else it is a carnal love. Number three, love to the saints must be extensive. We must love all who bear God's image. A, we must love the saints, even though they have many infirmities. A Christian in this life is like a good face full of freckles. If you cannot love another saint because of his imperfections, you have not yet seen your own face in the mirror. Your brother's infirmities may make you pity him, but his graces must make you love him. B, we must love the saints, even though they do not agree with us in some things. Another Christian may differ from me in lesser manners, 
matters, either because he has more light than I or because he has less light. If he differs from me because he has more light, then I have no reason to censure him. If he differs from me because he has less light, then I ought to bear with him as the weaker vessel. In things of an indifferent nature, there ought to be Christian forbearance. Bear, forbearance. C. We must love the saints even though their grace, their graces outvie and surpass ours. We ought to bless God for the eminence of another's grace, because religion is honored by this. Pride is not quite slain in a believer. Saints themselves are apt to grudge and repine at each other's excellences. Is it not strange that the same person should hate one man for his sin and envy another for his virtue? Christians need to look to their hearts. Love is right and genuine when we can rejoice in the graces of others, even though they seem to eclipse ours. Love to the saints must be appreciating. We must esteem them above others. He honors those who fear the Lord. Psalm 15, 4. We are to look upon the wicked as chaff. Psalm 1, Psalm 1, 4. But upon the saints as jewels. Zechariah 9, 16. These must be kept in high veneration. Number 5. Love to the saints must be social. We should delight in their company. I am a companion of all those who fear you. Psalm 119.63 It is a kind of hell to be in the company of the wicked, where we cannot help but hear God's name dishonored. It was a capital crime to carry the image of Tiberius, engraved on a ring or coin, into any sordid place. Those who have the image of God engraved on them should not go into, into any sinful, sordid company. I never read of any but two living people who desired to keep company with the dead, and they were possessed by the devil. Matthew 8.28 What comfort can a living Christian have from conversing with the dead? Jude 1, 12 and 13 But the society of saints is desirable. This is not to walk among the tombs, but among beds of spices. Believers are Christ's garden. Their great their graces are the flowers. Their savory discourse is the fragrant scent of these flowers. Number six, love to the saints must be demonstrative. We should be ready to exercise all the offices of love to them, vindicate their names, contribute to their necessities, and like the good Samaritan, pour oil and wine into their wounds. Luke ten thirty four and 35. Love cannot be concealed, but is active in its sphere, and it will lay itself out for the good of others. Number seven, love to the saints must be constant. He that dwells in love, 1 John 4.16. Our love must lodge not only for a night, but we must dwell in love. Let brotherly love continue, Hebrews 13.1. As love must be sincere without hypocrisy, so it must be constant without deficiency. Love must be like the pulse always beating, not like those Galatians who at one time were ready to pluck out their eyes for Paul, Galatians 4.15, and afterwards ready to pluck out his eyes. Love should not expire except with our life, and surely if our love to the saints is thus divinely qualified, we may hopefully conclude that we are enrolled among the godly. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. John 13.35 What induces a godly man to love the saints is because he is closely related to them. There ought to be love among relations. There is a spiritual kinship among believers. They all have one head. Therefore, they should all have one heart. They are living stones of the same building. 1 Peter 2.5 And shall these stones not be cemented together with love? Use 1. 
It is the distinguishing mark of a godly man to be a lover of the saints. Then how sad it is to see this grace of love in eclipse. The characteristics of godliness is almost blotted out among Christians. England was once a fair garden where the flower of love grew, but surely now this flower is either plucked or withered. Where is that amity and unity that should be among Christians? I appeal to you, would there be that censoring and despising, that reproaching and undermining of one another, if there was love, if there were love? Instead of bitter tears, there are bitter spirits, a sign that iniquity abounds when the love of many grows cold. There is that distance among some professing Christians, as if they had not received the same spirit, or as if they did not hope for the same heaven. In primitive times there was so much love among the godly that it set the heathen to wondering. And now there is so little love that it may set Christians to blushing. Used to. Because we would be written down as saints in God's calendar, let us love the brotherhood. 1 Peter 2.17 Those who will one day live together should love together. What is it that makes a disciple if not love? John 13.35 The devil has knowledge, but what makes him a devil is that he lacks love. To to persuade persuade Christians to love, consider these. Number one, the saints have in in them that which which may make us love them. They are the elaborate embroidery and workmanship of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 2.10. They have those rare lineaments of grace that none but a pencil from heaven could draw. Their eyes sparkle forth beauty. Their breasts are like clusters of grapes, Song of Songs 7.7. This makes Christ himself delight in his spouse, the king is held in the galleries. Song of Songs 7.5 The church is the daughter of a prince. Song of Songs 7.1 She is waited on by angels. Hebrews 1.14 She has a palace of glory reserved for her. John 14.2 And may not all this draw out our love? Number 2. Consider how evil it is for saints not to love. A. It is unnatural. The saints are Christ's lambs. John 21.15 for a dog to bite a lamb is, un- is usual, but for one lamb to bite another is unnatural. The saints are brethren, 1 Peter 3, eight. How barbarous it is for brethren not to love. B. Not to love is a foolish thing. Do God's people not have enemies enough that they should fly in one another's faces? The wicked unite against the godly. They have taken crafty counsel against your people, Psalm 83.3. Though a private grudge may fall out between those who are wicked, yet they will all agree and unite against the saints. If two greyhounds are snarling at a bone, just put a hair between them. They will leave the bone and chase after the hair. So too, if wicked men have private differences among themselves, and the godly are near them, they will stop snarling at one another and chase after the godly. Now when God's people have so many enemies abroad who watch for their stumbling and are glad when they can do them mischief, I'm sorry, and glad are and are glad when they can do them mischief. Shall the saints fall out and divide into parties among themselves? Number three, not to love is very unseasonable. God's people are in a common calamity. They suffer in one cause, and so for them to disagree is altogether unseasonable. Why does the Lord bring his people together in affliction, unless it is to bring them together in affection? Metals will unite in a furnace. If Christians ever unite, it should be in the furnace of affliction. Chrysostom compares affliction to a shepherd's dog, which makes all the sheep run together. 
God's rod has this loud voice in it. Love one another. How unworthy it is when Christians are suffering with one another to then be striving against one another. Not to love is very sinful. A. For saints not to love is to live in contradiction to Scripture. The apostle continually plucks on the string of love, as if it made the sweetest music in religion. We have this commandment from him, that he who loves God loves his brother. Also 1 John 4.21, also Romans 13.8, Colossians 3.14, 1 Peter 1.22, 1 John 3.11. Not to love is to walk contrary to the word. Can someone be a good physician who goes against the rules of medicine? Can someone be a good Christian who goes against the rules of piety? B. Lack of love among Christians greatly silences the spirit of prayer. Hot passions make cold prayers. Where animosities and contentions prevail, instead of praying for one another, Christians will be ready to pray against one another, like the disciples who would pray for fire from heaven upon the Samaritans. Luke 9.54 And do you think God will hear those prayers which come from a wrathful heart? Will he eat our leavened bread? Will he accept those duties which are soured with a bitterness of spirit? Shall that prayer which is offered with the strange fire of our sinful passions ever go up as incense? C. These heart burnings hinder the progress of piety in our own souls. The flower of grace will not grow in a wrathful heart. The body may thrive as well while it has the plague, as a soul may thrive that is infected with malice. While Christians are debating, grace is abating. As the spleen grows, health decays. As hatred increases, holiness declines. Number 5. Not to love is very fatal. The differences among God's people pretend ruin. All mischiefs come in at this gap of sin and division. Matthew 12.25 Animosities among saints may make God leave his temple. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood upon the threshold. Ezekiel 10.4 Does God not seem to stand upon the threshold of his house as if he were taking wings to fly? And woe to us if God departs from us. Hosea 9.12 If the master leaves the ship, it is near to sinking indeed. If God leaves a land, it must sink in ruin. Question. How shall we attain the excellent grace of love? Answer 1. Beware of the devil's couriers. I mean those who run his errands and make it their work to blow the coals of contention among Christians and render one party odious to another. Answer 2. Keep up friendly meetings. Christians should not be shy of one another, as if they had the plague. Answer 3. Let us plead that promise. I will give them one heart and one way. Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-nine. Let us pray that there may be no contests among Christians, except as to who shall love most. Let us pray that God will divide Babylon and unite Zion. Use 3. Is it a mark of a godly man to love the saints? Then those who hate the saints must stand indicted as ungodly. The wicked have an implacable malice against God's people, and how can antipathies be reconciled? To hate the holy children of God is a brand of the reprobate. Those who malign the godly are the curse of creation. If all the scalding drops from God's vial will make them miserable, then they shall be so. Never did any who were the haters and persecutors of saints thrive at that trade. What became of Julian, Diocletian, Maxim, Maximinus, Valerian, Cardinal Crescentius, and others? For some of them their bowels came out. Others choked with their own blood. 
that they might be set up as standing monuments of God's vengeance. Calamity will surely overtake the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be desolate. Psalm 34.21 All right. Well, that was our reading for this evening. It was a little bit shorter, but uh, it was good for us. Uh, thank you again for spending this time with me. Um, for uh, I hope it was edifying to you. I hope you're enjoying this part, um, this reading through Thomas Watson's A God, The Godly Man's Picture. We'll probably be doing more readings. We will be getting back to our Bible study but we, in John chapter 6. But we, we are going to do some more readings as well to try to expose you um, to some of these people, to, to some of these, in this case, these Puritans. Um, their theology was wonderful, and we all need theology. We are all called to be theologians. Those of us that are saved, we are all called to be theologians. None of us have any, has any excuse for not striving to be a theologian. And so that's what I'm hoping to engender and to assist in this case. Well, I hope you have a wonderful night. And God willing, I hope to see you in the morning. Let's go ahead and close out like we usually do on Friday with the six-day evening prayer. It's called the Mediator. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm sorry, let's pray. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We hope in thy word. There we see thee, not on a fearful throne of judgment, but on a throne of grace, waiting to be gracious and exalted in mercy. There we hear thee saying, Not depart ye cursed, but look unto me and be ye saved. For I am God, and there is none else. They that know thy name put their trust in thee. How many now glorified in heaven, and what numbers living on earth are thy witnesses, O God, exemplifying in their recovery from the ruins of the fall? the freeness, riches, and efficacy of thy grace. All that were ever saved were saved by thee, and will through eternity exclaim, Not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and truth's sake. Thou hast chosen to transact all thy concerns with us through a mediator, in whom all fullness dwells, and who is exalted to be prince and savior. To him we look, on him we depend, through him we are justified. May we derive relief from his sufferings without ceasing to abhor sin or to long after holiness. Feel the double efficacy of his blood, tranquilizing and cleansing our consciences. Delight in his service as well as in his sacrifice. Be constrained by his love. To live not to ourselves, but to him. Cherish a grateful and cheerful disposition, not murmuring and repining if our wishes are not indulged or because some trials are blended with our enjoyments but sensible of our desert, and impressed with the number and greatness of thy benefits. May we bless and praise thee at all times. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have a wonderful evening, and I hope to see you in the morning. Have a good night. God bless.